Varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Jenny Diski i samtal med Marie Pettersson. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast. Jag är litteratur- och bibliotekschef i detta stora allkonsthus vid Sägelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. I um, spend my day, I try to spend my day today uh, in a, a, a disky fashion. I try to do nothing. Excellent. Mm. I approve. <laughs> I lay in bed and uh, I draw the blinds and the curtains and I, I got your book with me. But I didn't succeed at all. I don't know how you do it. My legs wouldn't keep still. And I was lying down. It takes years of practice, Marie. <laughs> not easy. <laughs> But I, find out, I found out something interesting and in that when I actually tried to do something, read your book for the second time, I found it almost impossible to concentrate. It was a kind of contradiction between lying down and trying to keep still and then still wanting to do something. So I, I, I didn't get any further than the introduction which I've studied in minute detail. And you say a few interesting things there, quite a few, actually. And I was, I was wondering, is there any place at all that you really would like to go to? Bed, now? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're not um, nodding off, are you? No, not mm. really. No, not really. I've, I've been. I went on a very um, breezy and healthy boat ride round um, Stockholm this afternoon. So I'm, I'm feeling exhausted, as a matter of fact. So you. But I'll been... try and stay away. Where do I want to go? I know. You know, there isn't really. I, I mean, I can't think of anywhere I really want to go in the sense of there's a place I want to explore. If I really wanted to know about a place, I suppose I'd read a book about it. You know, mm-hmm. because somebody would have, you know, found out much more than I could find out by wandering about, you know. Um, I don't, I really, really, nobody believes me, that's the thing. I'm, I'm, I actually want to be in certain kind of situations, which is, you know, white places or... Um, keeping still but landscape coming past me. And those things are like being on a boat or going to Antarctica or being on a train. But I don't have a kind of great desire. I guess I tell you where I like being is in New York in, in a bar. I like sitting at a bar in New York. New York. Mm, that's nice. But, you know, it's not really exactly <coughs> travelling, is it? Really? No. <laughs> I don't think I'm curious. I don't have that kind of I must see everything in the world because I have a sense that I can find out most things if I go to the library. Really. They made lots of, uh, a lot of fuss uh, while you've been here, not only in Sweden but in England as well, about you you're saying that the, um, I'm traveling or making a few journeys but, and I write about it but it's not a travel book and, uh, mm. and what I want to do is I, I wish to, to keep still and I thought well Most people, I don't think this is so unusual. I think a lot of people would like to uh, be still. And I turned this over once or twice, and I th- 
thought, well, maybe not. Uh, people stay still because they, or, or I mean stay still in the sense that they don't travel because they, they, they can't, they can't afford it, they, uh, they can't be bothered. Mm. But I think the main difference, or the really important difference, is that you make such a statement out of it. You say, yeah. it's my deepest wish to, to keep yes. still. Yeah, I can't believe I'm the only person that doesn't really you know, want to go off for two weeks and pack all my bags and then unpack them and then pack them again and then come home. You know, in, and get on aeroplanes and wait and queue up. I, I don't, there's not much to be said for you know, that kind of tourist sort of travelling, is there? No, really? not the way you put it, no. Mm. <laughs> well, it's how it is, though, isn't it? I mean, you know, you get well, a little respite in between when you're actually in the place, after you've recovered from the travelling. <laughs> um, I mean, keeping still or remaining still, what is that exactly? What is this stillness that you're craving so much for? Well... I suppose it's it's about it's about silence. It's about a kind of silence that that I'd like to achieve. And I sp there's a sense that if I'm in the right kind of empty, quiet place, which is of course really you know the room I work in, um, then I I kind of hear something. I'll hear you know what it is I'm talking to myself about. You know, um, and uh, other things interfere with that. You know, people interfere with it, and events interfere with it. And you know, the sense that absolutely nothing is happening, and much more important, nothing is about to happen or is going to happen. I mean, anticipation is a terrible problem. I don't, you know, it's it's not good enough for nothing to be happening now. I want to know that nothing's going to be happening. Um, you like empty calendars, don't you? Hmm? You like empty calendars. I love, mm. yes, I do. Mm. I get really panicky if I look at my calendar and there's, you know, stuff going on. And, the, and anything happening, you know, more, more than one thing a week and, and I think something is really problematic. You know, I can't, I, I have to go to bed to cope with the idea of, you know, of it. I'm lazy. I mean, I, really, I think, I, you know, it's, it's fairly simple. I'm also just really indolent. I've got, maybe I've, I've got very low blood pressure. Maybe it's metabolic, you know. But I'm really happy just not doing anything. I don't get fidgety. I don't, you know, I don't think, oh, I've just really got to get up and wash a cup or something. I can sit absolutely still and stare out of a window or write or read a book or do all of those things um, for hours, days. Don't you get bored? No, <laughs> Well, if I do, I, it's interesting, you know, I mean... The boredom yeah, is interesting. Yes. In what way? Can you I don't please? know. It, 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 it's, it becomes a kind of a rolling state of mind. You know, at the beginning of this book, there's a quote from Montaigne, who mm -hmm. was writing, you know, in 15, 1570, 1580. Um, and he describes how it came about that he started writing this, these, his essays, which were like the first time anybody had written those particular kind of things and those very personal investigations. Um, and he says he decided to retire. He was the mayor of Bordeaux, and he decided to retire and go and sit in his tower and write some things. And the first thing he's, things he writes are kind of rather dull bits of rhetorical stuff that you know, are the right way of doing things. Uh, but, he says, 
he, his mind started skittering about and and rushing off like a runaway horse. And instead of this kind of wonderful, calm serenity, um, he started getting crazy. It's not clear whether he means by crazy depressed, which I think might well be the case, um, or whether he meant crazy crazy, or both. You know, there's all different ways of going crazy. <laughs> um, and that's really, you know, there's something I recognise really well. You know, I, boredom is a kind of, that kind of skittering mind that, that, isn't, that won't settle. And, and after a bit, that gets quite interesting. Well, you know, I mean, I, I just don't find boredom boring. I don't think we mean the same thing. Okay, no. what do we mean? No, I, well, what do you I was, mean? <laughs> I was thinking of something monotonous, dull. Oh. I, I'm probably thinking of the color white, which I know you like, and it makes me crazy instead, because it's nothingness, it's just mm. nothing. But it's a, it's a blank canvas, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's a metaphor, but I mean, if you, if you feel like a, a blank white sheet of paper... Do I myself feel like mm -hmm. a blank white? That's really mm -hmm. much too kind of definite a thing to describe myself as. Um, yeah, no, I mean, there's a, there's, there is a, a chapter in this book about feeling empty, about, you know, I have, I've had have this sort of fantasy that I don't have any organs. Now, you know, I'm not a complete idiot, and I do know that I obviously <laughs> have got organs, and, you know, most of the ones that everybody else has. Um, but my kind of perception of myself is of a, of a sort of, like, that I don't, and I'm sort of, you know, empty and hollow, and I, it's a sort of state of bliss, really. You know, I mean, if you think about having organs, it's quite unpleasant, isn't it? And you kind of dum 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 and doing stuff and palpating and all the things that goes on inside one, thank God, we don't know about it. Um, <laughs> but, but I don't know. I, do, I don't have a problem about blankness. I really think that, you know, the sort of emptiness, blankness, inner and outer, are, um, are delightful. And I get less and less interested in elaboration. I find myself being not as excited as I used to be about movies and things. I will watch them, but I just can't be bothered with stories anymore, either. Not even written stories, like an, no. a, a good novel, Some, or just well, a novel? Well, sometimes, but I'm, I resist getting caught up in them. I find, you know, I, I resist sort of picking up a novel or... So seeing. there is a part of you who would like to? Well, no, there's probably yeah. a part of me that thinks that's what I ought to do, to be a good little person. Um, and I don't like telling stories myself. You know, uh, I hate the part of writing that requires me to, to, to tell a story, to do narrative. I, you know, it's a kind of tedious thing that I, that I don't enjoy at all. And, you know, the, uh, the perfect book in my head hasn't got any stories in it, any characters in it. Certainly no landscape. Um, and I'm, you know, I really want to get there. I'm trying, 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 but, but, but... You know, there's a, there's a sort of good little girl in me somewhere that says, you know, I, I've got to give them a bit of a story or, you know, something's got to happen. I have to say that the novel I'm writing now, rather, I realise, rather, has got about three conversations in it. And I keep thinking about that um, thing that Alice says at the beginning of, of 
I can't remember. Is it through the look? No, I think or, or Wonderland. What is the book? What's the use of a book without conversation or pictures? And I keep thinking, I'm writing a book without conversation or pictures, and who's going to want to read it? Alice wouldn't clearly. Yeah. So what is it? I mean, apart from three conversations. I don't know. I, I, you know, I just I, I I'd like to really write a sort of. Really, I suppose ideally there'd be a single perfect word on the page and that would, you know, engage the it. readers and the reader would then, you know, elaborate from that and make their own <laughs> books, you know. I mean, readers have to work too, And they don't have they? to do all the work, yeah. Yeah, I don't see why that shouldn't be the case. I mean, there are plenty of people around to tell people stories and that, you know. In, the, in, the, in your introduction to your latest book, um, you also wrote about... Um, the difference between fiction and non-fiction. Mm. It was something that you weren't pleased with it. I can't remember the exact word. No, you were distressed by it. Mm. Well, I distrust it, really. I don't, I don't trust it as a... Um, the distinction. distinction? No. Why not? Well, because we all know better, don't we? I mean, it's an interesting fact that it's called fiction and non-fiction. Nobody says fiction and truth, you know. We, we know that non-fiction, you know, bears um, a very complex relationship to truth. And we know that fiction bears a very complex relationship to things that are made up. Um, I think that the notion of fiction and non-fiction are very much, you know, they're for booksellers, you know. <coughs> People who libraries, you know, where do you shelve the books? And, you know, that's quite handy. I was in Ireland once, and I went into a bookshop in, in Bantry, and it had um, a wall of fiction, but divided in half. And one wall was novels by men, and the other half was novels by women. <laughs> it's as good a way as any, really. I think. Um, <laughs> There's all sorts of interesting ways that, you know, you can categorise novels, but fiction and non-fiction is a kind of great heavy stamping boot, you know. And the mm. assumption is if it's non-fiction, then this is, you know, absolutely accurate and true. And, and of course it's nonsense because books are artefacts and one, one, you make a non-fiction book according to its needs, as it were. And if, if something needs rearranging, in, in, you know, and though it happened in a different way, you do it. I don't have a problem with that at all. I don't much have a problem with making things up, really, in non-fiction. Um, I suppose, you know, a serious work of history might... But then you'd require sources. I mean, if, you know, if, if, if you want to know that something is the truth, really, you just need footnotes, and then you can go and check it out yourself. Um, and I don't think, you know, fiction... Obviously, we know perfectly well that fiction is, you know, is a, is a mixture of... the of what we know nothing about, what we've made up out of the air, and what we know about intimately. Um. So that's why you say, when you're in Somerset and you, you meet with a, the farmer mm. whose uh, cottage you're renting, you s she doesn't want to be in the book, or she's yeah. worried about it, yeah. or concerned. Mm. And you said that, well, you can do, you can fix it, because it takes a lot of imagination to write non-fiction. Yes, mm. that's true, yes. It was a it's interesting. It was an interesting problem because the thing about real life is uh, that that it comes up very often with perfect scenarios. You know, you don't really have to make a lot of things up, which is true. 
And so I went to Somerset, and there was this woman who was in her 70s and as a farmer and had, had all sorts of extraordinary... She'd been a shepherd since she was 15 because she, she came from a sort of academic Cambridge family, but she just longed to be a, a shepherd. And so she, she was. And she went to New Zealand and, and so on. Anyway, so she was a very remarkable person. Um, and if it was a novel, I could have made up a farmer, but I really wouldn't have had to, because I, there she was, completely perfect. And then there she was again, saying, oh, I don't want you to put me in this book. And there was this perfect character. And there I'm going to have to make somebody up. It seemed sort of silly, really. You know, there's, it's to do with necessity, you know. If you, so... Um, Did you make her up? Well, no, I just, I just said I'd call her The Farmer. She's called The Farmer, with capital letters. Um, and in the end, people on the whole don't mind being in books. That's the truth of it. They very often say they don't want, you know, don't put me in it, but they don't really very much mind. And she actually was really pleased with the book in the end. But, you know, what she didn't want was hordes of people, as if, you know, so many people are going to read my book that, you know, they were all going to go in, in coach loads. Um, down to this farm um, and upset her sheep, which is completely reasonable. <laughs> I upset her sheep just on my own. There's no reason why you know, all these millions of my readers <laughs> well, should do that. So I just made sure that, 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 that I didn't mention the farm or, where it, you know, or make it very specific and, and, and that I didn't say anything about her. Um, that she didn't want me, you know, that she didn't want to... Um, and I didn't identify her as, a, you know, an individual. But in the end, we did a reading in the local bookshop. You know, she, she'd written, a, she'd written an amazing book um, about her life, which is so good and out of print, and I couldn't get anybody to republish it. Um, so both of us, she read from her book and I read from mine, so she wasn't that shy about it, turned out, really. And you said before that you weren't curious. Uh, I've been thinking about curiosity because I thought that if you want to remain still and, and undisturbed, curiosity could be, you know, like a nagging, persisting little mm -hmm. presence, you know, at the corner of your eye. It seemed to be a, a, a part of the human equipment to be curious, but. Uh, if, I mean, if you go to Somerset when you went to New Zealand. Weren't you curious? Wasn't curiosity part of the reason you went? No, I went to New Zealand because they said, would I go to a writer's festival? Um, and having gone, it seemed really silly to sort of turn around a few days later and come home. So I had a you know, I did an extra two weeks and thought I'd just wander about on my own. It's another way of just travelling around on my own. Um, I went to Somerset in order to be in one place and sit in a cottage and, and sort of think about what I wanted to think about and, and, and do some writing. Um, curiosity really didn't have anything to do with it. I went to Lapland because I wanted to sit in the dark for, for a week. I wanted, you know, I went in the winter and they phoned, somebody, phoned, the observer phoned me up and said, do you want to go somewhere? We're doing a travel thing. And I said, yes, I'd like to go up north in the winter and write a piece about being in the dark for, you know, 24 hours a day. Um, it had nothing to do with curiosity. I mean, as it turned out, and that's the point, of course, as it always turns out, um, New Zealand is full of, you know, people I bump into, and they bump into me, and 
there's a farmer attached to my empty cottage, um, you know, who becomes, and a dog and sheep and all sorts of things that become, you know, I, have, I cannot help but get involved with. <laughs> and in Lapland, I am taken up by the Sami who want to include me in their extraordinary and very cold way of life. And it's not and none of these things did I do out of curiosity. I really, I mean, it not not about curiosity about people or things. Just can I just go and sit somewhere and then write about what it's like sitting somewhere? And it doesn't work. This book originally was going to be a book about nothing happening. I was going to I wanted to write a book about a year of nothing happening at all, which is difficult. I mean, you know, that's a serious challenge. Um, but I thought <laughs> it would be really rather interesting, you know, what does happen? And, and it's, you know, I mean, it's clearly it's a montanean challenge, isn't it? So, you know, I thought, well, I'll just not do anything for a year, and that's going to be my book, and I'll see what comes out of my head, if anything. And, um, and of course, these things kept coming up, go to New Zealand, or, you know, so I'll go to New Zealand, or go to Lapland, or... And then I sort of got this little two months in the farm where I thought I could actually keep still, but that didn't work really either. Such does, a does that make sense? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know why everyone is so surprised about this. There must be other people in the world who like just sitting still and daydreaming. Well, yeah, well, maybe they succeeded. They Drugs. sort of withdrawn. I think work. it's because in my heart of hearts, I would like to be in a permanent opium dream. <laughs> you know, and if you want to know where would I really like to go, well, I would like to go to the land of opium dreams, really, and I'd be perfectly happy. And you know, I'm happy to write about it afterwards. But you can't if get the opium. Could pay, <laughs> if anyone could pay you to go to open land opium, well, I land. need. Yes, that's the other thing. I do need to pay, you know, my bills, and I need to buy food and that. So there is a there is a, there's the component of earning my living. Yeah. Um, so between those two things. I think I've worked it all out really quite well, except for the Lapland thing, where everything went really radically not the wrong. way I'd intended it to. I can't say wrong, because I'm ever so pleased I did it, but I'm very pleased it's over as well. <laughs> <laughs> so keeping still, is that equivalent to solitude, or does it require to be alone when you sit still? Could you sit still and be content, and I hmm. sit beside you, or your poet, yeah. or your... It's no. difficult because no. other people, even if they're quiet, they're there, aren't they? They're, you know, other people. You... <laughs> it's awful. It really is awful. And I'm, you know, very contented and, and, and in a very, you know, good relationship with the poet. And we live together in Cambridge and everything. But it's very nice when he, you know, when he goes away. It's good. <laughs> and he probably likes it, you know, when he goes away or you know when I go away. But <sighs> you. People want contradictory things. This also I don't find a big problem, you know, that you want one thing, but you also want something else, and for some extraordinary reason you can't have both at the same time. I don't know why not. I think there is a part of me that feels it, it, that I ought to be on my own. There's just, there just is. There's just some, something in me that thinks 
that it, it's not right for me to be with people. And I really you mean ought to, or to as in you should, it's, like a duty, or you, this is what you right really need? For, it's the right thing for me. That's what I ought to be doing, you know, uh, that awful word, authenticity. You know, where I belong is on my own. And that's, that, you know, that would be me living, you know, doing the, the, living the kind of life I ought to lead. Um, so, it's, you know, one's, one's kind of torn. But, you know, when I am on my own, when I'm seriously on my own, I, you know, I don't have a single interesting thought. I don't, you know, nothing of any interest occurs. It's terribly disappointing. But then writing, you know, books are about disappointment, really, aren't they, I think. That would be the, the real challenge, then, if you want to re write a book about nothing happening, and you said before that whatever turns up in your head, and nothing turns up, you saying now, what would this mm. book be about? Well, it's the wrong kind of nothing, isn't it? There's nothing, and then there's nothing. There's a sort of serene nothing, which I suppose is what I'm really after. And then there's a sort of fidgety nothing. I mean, I did describe that in the, in the um, introduction, and you know, the, the, there's a kind of edginess, an, an inability to... to, to calm down and to settle, probably if I meditated. But I think even if I meditated, it wouldn't be any good. Um, Have you tried? And, oh, yeah. Yeah. But then I worry a lot about whether I'm doing it right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, one is always torn. One is, you know, never, things are never exactly quite right. I, I suppose I'm just a Fetcher, I complain all the time. I'm, a, I, you know, things are never right. Things are never right. That's what my mother used to say. You're always nothing's ever right with you, and it's true. I'm sorry. I now realise that everything my mother said to me was true. <laughs> but that's interesting. If, I mean, as a concept, as an idea, to write a book about nothing mm. happening, because all, not all books, but at least novels and well, storytelling on mm. the whole, I think, in general, is packed with mm. events. events. Yes. Yeah. yes. And, and I, I went, I, went I, I was a deeply unsuccessful um, visiting professor of creative writing at, at, at a university because I can't for the life of me see how you teach people to write, really. And I went, I only had to go one day a year or something. They, want, this just, they wanted my name on a bit of paper. So I went for my one day a year. And, and I sort of sat with this group, and, and they were talking, the, the staff, the teachers, were sort of talking, of, you know, in terms of, you know, now, of course, we all know that you have to have your inciting incident within, you know, 20 pages of the mm. beginning of the novel. And they're really, apparently, it turns out, there really is a way to write a novel, and, and, and they know it, and they're teaching people how to do it. And it just bears no relation to anything I understand about, you know, writing. Um, but it is about... Um, being much nicer to readers than I am, and you know, and not wanting them to feel in the slightest bit sort of bored or or or, or have to make any effort at all. And also, the other great tip, if you want a really good tip about how to write novels, is you have to your sentences always have them have to have the most active part at the end. And when I said why, it was so that it said because so that the reader will want to go on and read the next sentence. 
I don't know who these readers are. I mean, you see, I expect my readers to, you know, if there's a next sentence, I expect them to go on and read it, you know. It seems just a reasonable thing to do. <laughs> there you are. So, um, were you uh, lecturing? I mean, did you... No, well, I sort of did little kind of workshops, but everything I said was against what they'd all been taught, you know, everything. And I wasn't deliberately trying to be difficult. Um, because I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have the slightest idea what I'm doing when I write novels. And although I've written or any other kind of book, it's like nothing accrues. You know, I've written probably about 15 books now. And um, every book I write is like the first book I've written. This is not encouraging, or maybe it is encouraging, I don't know. But, you know, most other forms of life, the more you do something, the kind of more you know how to do it. Well, it do you think? I mean, I don't know. Do you think? Well, yeah, well, if you're talking about trades and, and sort of certain physical skills like making a glass or making the paper for the book or mm. maybe even printing the book. But there is an assumption that there's a sort of technique to writing that is like a skill yeah, that can be taught. Mm. And, and I, don't, um, I don't have that sense, really, that I've learned it. It's a shame. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Let's just sit here and say I don't know. I don't know. No, I, do. <laughs> I was just picturing you, those people at the university or whatever it was where you were lecturing, how you left them sort of traumatized and with deep anxiety. They just thought they learned how to do it. And there you were telling them yes. that this is... No, I is know. I kept trying to resign. Yes, it was a three-year stint. And it was only three years, like one day a year for three years. And after the first day, I realised, I, you know, I just was not what they wanted. And I was making everything bad and wrong. And so I said, can I stop and can I resign now and get someone else? And they said, no, you can't because we need you. You've got a contract for three years and we need the money. And, they, and then the next year I said, well, can I resign now? And not until the three years were up, that is to say the three days, um, was, I, was I freed from... And they were freed as well, you know, actually. So I'm not a success as a creative writing teacher. <laughs> but I do do a bit of writing workshops at Newnham College in, in Cambridge, um, sort of once a week with the, with the, the uh, students at Newnham. But I stipulate that nothing creative is allowed, don't anybody to do anything creative, and I certainly don't want them to express themselves. <laughs> And it works quite well, actually. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> so if you don't express yourself, what do you express? Well, I Can do I, express yeah. myself. I, you know, of course mm. I do. I just talk about myself all the time. Have you noticed? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think most writers are, you know, self-obsessed. I mean... Why else would they be sitting alone in a room talking to themselves and, and writing? It's, I, the only difference with me is that I admit it, I guess. I mean, I think other people admit it too, but you know, some people don't. You write books about it. I write whole mm. books about it, and I just wonder when you know, I'm going to be found out you know, that I'm 
Um, it's all there is, you know, it's all I can do. I mean, if I am going to be a writer, I don't know what else there is to do but, but write about um, what I've got in my head. It doesn't mean write only about what you know, because you, you know, when you can write, you can make things up, but you can only make things up, you know, from yourself. So you're back where you started, really. Your latest novel, not the one that you're, uh, that you're doing now, mm. because that's not finished, right? No. no. But the other one, I can't remember the title, um, about Abram and yes. Sarah. Yeah. Uh, was that something you had in your head, the, uh, the yeah. Bible? I think I read something about you. You said that you wanted to retrieve or maybe even save. Oh, yes, I, say, I think the I did from stupidity. I did that's say. What you said. I did say that because I was really, really pissed off. I'm really, really pissed off with you know sort of born again Christianity and stuff. Um, it seems to me to be doing far too much damage of late. Well, perhaps for a long time, but um, so I just said that. No, what happened was I'd never, you know, I'd read the Bible like we'd all read the Bible at school, little stories and pictures of people in, you know, towels and that. And, you know, picked out the stories. And, and it just suddenly occurred to me to sit down and read the Bible like a book, you know, from the beginning, as it were, literally from the beginning. Um, and I'd sat down and it was absolutely hopeless because I in, if I read it in English, I naturally I went straight for the King, King James version, and it's like you know going to Shakespeare, and it's you know it's, you you just know it too well. It's like you've read it everything already because it's full of quotes, and it's it's very beautiful and wonderful. But so I started reading other versions of it, not horrible modern versions, but but some quite good other versions of it, and um, I was amazed by it as uh, as a. As a text, I found it just so exciting. I started reading about, you know, the way it was, it was collated and and and, and the theories about about how it how it came about, and I was, um, I loved it. I just, you know, there's a whole kind of use of of repetition and 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 absence and and uh, you know techniques of of storytelling of minimalist storytelling mm. that I found stunning um, and since the story of Abraham and his family as it were um, you know the rattling good family yarn um, at least as good as Oedipus if, if not better um, I thought I wanted to play with it you know it's, 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 it's as good as as good a basic you know tale as I could think of um, so I so I, I I wrote one novel about Abraham and, and Sarah, um, and of course it's really about posterity. I mean that you know it's a story about you know. There's no there's no afterlife in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. It's, you know it doesn't come until much much later. So it's it's a harsh story about you know people who know that there's nothing after death, but the only thing there is is memories. Is you know. The, the recollection of one's ch children, grandchildren, and so on. And it's a story of striving for that against this incredible bully called God. You know. um, so I wanted to play around with that. And I, 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 so I wrote this kind of love story where sort of God, and God is in love with Abraham and Sarah is in love with Abraham, and Abraham is sort of somewhat torn between the two. But basically just interested in you know, surviving. That's it. So yeah, and then I wrote, and I thought, well, better write the next bit then. 
with uh, Jacob, who, who's a fine character. So I wrote those two books, and for some reason people think I'm religious as a result. I don't understand why, really. But anyway, it, became, it was because I really liked reading the Bible, and I wanted to sort of play around with those, you know, some of the ideas in it. This, um, maybe it was because you said, no, afterlife is a horrible image in my mind of, um, of just one big now, one present, nothing else like this, but only one spotlight on, on you, one tiny circle of light, and the rest is darkness. Um, I thought about... Um, this longing for stillness and nothing happening and no company and no events and no thoughts and it's like death. Well spotted. <laughs> <laughs> yes, such clever, clever, clever thoughts. Um, yeah, of course it is. It's you know, I mean, in in skating to Antarctica, the you know the the, the word oblivion comes up a lot and. Um, I just I like unconsciousness. Um, so I, 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 um, I, I admit it. It is like death, really. Uh, I like the idea of being unconscious, and I always have. I like dreams. I like dreaming. I think that's quite interesting. Um, but I can't explain it, really. Well, I, you know... 25 years of psychoanalysis, I dare say. I doubt it. Um, that's what I'm like. You know, it's not good, I expect. It'd be much better if I you know, was a little bit more energetic and rather more positive about things. But, um, you know... That's how it is. So basically, I walk around thinking, God, I wish I was unconscious, and people come along and interrupt me. <laughs> um, and then I write down what happened. It's, you know, it's not that I reject everything. It's I actually observe what happens and, 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 and note it down. It's, I suppose it's, it's you know, a sort of perfect writing situation, really. You know, it's like not being there, but... but Things come up, so I have to deal with it in order, and that's it. I have to deal with things that happen in order to have things stop happening. Really, I'm never ever late for a deadline because I have this notion in my head that once I've done everything that I have to do, everything will be done. And I know it doesn't work like that, you know. But then I do realise that what I'm talking about is being dead, you know, and that's the only time when everything is going to be done, isn't it? So I'm sorry. I, you know, I'd like to have come here to cheer you up. <laughs> yeah, but you said in a, we can move to another topic instead of that. Yes, yes. Let's something do more lighthearted. Yeah. Well, that's just if you think of death as silence and and emptiness. Yes. It could be full of angels singing and singing, yeah, singing no, all day long. Yes, no, I don't. I mean, it is point. true that I did have something of a sort of suicidal tendency in my in my younger days, my much younger days. Um, and always, what stopped me was the sudden terror that it, death might not be the end. I mean, you know. The <laughs> <laughs> 
it's absolutely true that if anybody could have guaranteed me oblivion after death, there would have been no problem with swallowing the tablets or doing whatever it was I'd done. But there is this kind of, oh my God, what if? And how, you know, there's a limit to how much irony I can take. And, mm. you know, an irony that's an entire afterlife, an eternal, is, would be too cruel, really, too dreadful. I'm looking for a bridge now, actually. I don't think you should bother. Never, I don't, I don't, never try I don't to make about, links. No, 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 it really doesn't bridges. matter. Just uh, leap into something else. Let's talk about something positive. Let's okay. talk about spiders. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I, that, you see, it's true. I, you, I say that I have a sort of minor interest in life, but look what happens, how positive I am about spiders. What do you want me to say about them? Oh. Well, there used to be disgusting, hairy, yucky things who were crawling out from the dark corners, not only of your mind, but everywhere. Mm. And I, I know a bit about it, because I'm just the same as uh, probably quite a lot of, of you in the audience as well, I would think. It's something like 30% of the population of England are phobic about spiders. 30% of the population in England? Yeah. Well, I say England, probably. I don't know how, whether that includes Scotland and Wales or not, but I, ca I cannot get into that. <laughs> <laughs> it's too complex. Well, well, if you say 30% of the audience, that means uh, 100 would be scared to death of spiders. But you did something about it, because I, I think that's so admiring. You have to tell that. That's a story, and you have to I put up with it. I am... I was deeply phobic, I mean really seriously terrified of spiders and I would just, you know, I, I, I have many nights sat up in the middle, sort of upright in the middle of the bed because I've seen a spider and it's escaped and there's nothing to do but stay in, in the bed, in the, you know, in the middle of an inaccessible place with a light on. I have, used to have Wellington boots by my bed in order to go on a sort of spider hunt. And my ex-husband, when he got really fed up with coming to, in the middle of the night to come and sort out spider stuff, although he was my ex-husband, um, he gave me a blowtorch. <laughs> and, you know, and I used to blast, you know. The problem about spiders is, and if you're frightened of spiders, is that you can't just kill them because you mustn't have any kind of connection between your hand and the object that's killing the spider. And not only mischief, but whatever, and also there has to be a, you know, a critical distance. Um, so a blowtorch is good because, you know, there's all that fire stuff in between your hand and, and the machine. Somebody in England once had a really good idea, which is um, a soda water siphon. You know those old-fashioned soda mm. water siphons mm. for, for when they're in the in But the they sink. just crawl up. That's the that's no, a trick. Don't. That's a trick. They just yes. crawl up to a little ball and then they... But you can get them down the plug hole with a, if you know, with a nice, you know, with a well. Anyway, I really don't like it, and, and I'm a huge fan of CSI, um, which I hope you all watch. Um, but Grissom in his office, at the back of his office, has a huge, great big black spider, and I used to have to look away whenever there was a scene in Grissom's office. I had to avert my eyes. 
In London, in the Zoological Society of London, they have something that's really rather revolting, nauseatingly called the Friendly Spider Programme. It just even the thought of the idea of friendly spiders seems to me to be an offence. You know? um, and they've had it for about 15 years. Uh, it's simply a, it's one off, it's an afternoon session that you go to. And I've known about it for 15 years, and not until last spring did I do it. I signed up. And I went um, to this spider phobia thing. And it was just awful. It was 30 women in, in this lecture theatre. And it was women, they, what they said was it's usually about 50 50 or slightly less, but you know, it's all, all, there's always some men. But this was during the World Cup, so you know, some big football. <laughs> so it was only women. Um, and. Uh, we sat in this, and they started telling us that the keeper of the spiders was telling us about spiders and what their habits were, and they didn't really come towards us when we're sitting on the sofa. They were just looking for dark places, and I think, oh, this is just, you know, thank you, I know this, but this has nothing to do with the fact that spiders loathe me and hate me, and they are malevolent beasts. And then, um, you know, so we were told all these very, very practical things and so on, and we were asked to split up into pairs and discuss it with our neighbour. <laughs> share it. And I don't do sharing. You know, the idea, I, just, I just, I nearly ran away. I thought, I just can't do it. But the woman next to me had been crying. As she came in, she'd been crying, so terrified was she even to be talking about spiders. So we talked about, you know, what we don't like about spiders. And everybody came up with all the things, you know, black hairy legs and the body and, and, and they rush and they... But the best one was a woman who spoke up at the end and said, what I don't like about spiders is that they won't keep still and let you kill them. <laughs> Which only the spider-phobic people in this audience will understand is absolutely right mm. and spot on. It's a perfect description of what's wrong with spiders. Um, we were then taken into another room, told to lie down on the floor, and a nice man with a rather dull voice um, did a 20-minute hypnosis session. Um, you know, really, like, it's actually kind of deep relaxation, like you do at the end of a, of a yoga session. You know, you're relaxing and you're going deeper and go down some stairs and... And there you are, and now you're very relaxed. And I thought, yes, I am very relaxed. I can do this at home. It's not difficult to be very relaxed if you, you know, make yourself very relaxed. And when's the hypnosis coming? And just get on with it, for Christ's sake. And, um, and then he said, you know, spiders won't hurt you. Everything's fine. I thought, oh, please. You know. And then we got up, and they took us over the road to the insect house where they'd, got, they'd been collecting spiders from the, um, from the, you know, from the garden um, near, around the place. And they had them all in little big you know, spiders, spiders in, um, in sort of dry little aquaria. And, and they, asked us, they asked us sort of individually to put our hands in... Just put your hand in. And then when you're comfortable with that, just move your finger and the spider will kind of move along. And then oh. put your hand flat and let the spider run over it. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And I did. Um, and then they you know, showed us how to get a cup and a card and, and all that. And I now have a photograph at home of me with Frida. <laughs> who is a red-kneed tarantula. 
that size, the legs that go like that, you know, and I'm standing there holding and smiling. <laughs> I don't know what was wrong with Frida, because she must have been catatonic, actually, because she was, <laughs> she was just... Whether they injected her with something, I don't know. But, you know, there were all of us, one by one, except for one person who it clearly didn't, you know, it just didn't, she just could not get, even get into the room. Um, but everybody else... Um, just did it all, just did it. And I haven't had a problem with spiders since. I run around and collect them and put them out in the garden, dear things, because I know they'll be happier there. <laughs> I have terrible remorse about the vast numbers that I have killed or had cause to be killed. I'm cured. And the real thing is, you think, God, what else can I sort out? You know, if it's that easy, I don't really have to have any problems anymore about anything, but I don't think that's quite true. There you are, I've told them my spider story. <laughs> I don't know much about phobias, actually, but I, uh, what, I was, what I'm worried about is that it's a sort of uh, a small lump of energy, and it could take on different shapes and colours. Here we have a spider phobia, and if you take that away, the shape of it, it sort of just moves around, and then, mm. then you tend... In, in three weeks, you were scared to death by fish. Yeah. It's the return of the repressed, isn't it? Mm. You know, that's what one expects. Mm. You know, any, any good Freudian will tell you that. But while I was explaining all this at some dinner party, and there was a psychiatrist, not, a, not an analyst, but a, you know, a you know, proper, regular psychiatrist person, and she was looking very superior as I explained the miracle of my, you know, the new me. And... Um, what she said was that, that phobias are the easiest thing in the world to cure, which is a bit disappointing if you've been tormented all your life. <laughs> Some of them are seriously, I mean, if they're connected, you know, I mean, there, are, there are certain kinds of claustrophobia, which, you know, which are you know, clearly more complicated, but simple phobias, frightened of spiders, frightened of snakes. She said, a wonderful phrase, she said, a phobia, a simple phobia is the nearest thing there is to normal. <laughs> She's good. She's really, yeah, really, good. really good. And um, and it's very strange. I mean, I did feel I'd been kind of stripped of, of the kind of horror of my life. I mean, I spent my life in absolute horror. Autumns, I wait, you know, come the summer, I'm in anguish about the coming autumn because that's when spiders come into the houses and, and you know, to, to, to mate and make more spiders. And... Um, it's all gone, I, you know. It, it, it's almost as if some part of me has disappeared and I feel a kind of mourning for it. <laughs> but I have got so much, you know, less anxiety. You know, I don't look all the time where, you know, find spiders. So it turns out that spider phobia, you don't, you know, hypnosis works, aversion therapy, anti-aversion therapy, apparently anything works. Um... You don't have to do 20 years of analysis and discover it's, you know, your mother's vagina that you're frightened of. Apparently, it just doesn't matter whether it is or it isn't. You just deal with it. So that's good news, isn't it? I mean, you know, that is encouraging. I just wish I'd done it before I was 50, you know. Terrible. 50, nearly 60. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Oi. Um... Would you like to... This is so, all of a sudden, this is an animal theme, because <laughs> I was thinking that maybe you could read a piece from your latest book about cows. 
Yes. Actually, cows really have got nothing to do with this book. One thing that doesn't happen really in this book is cows. But what I, I do tend to go in for sort of reminiscences. Things make me remember things. And when I was in Lapland and I was participating in a, in a kind of way <laughs> um, in the parting of the reindeer, the annual parting of the reindeer, which I was sort of quite catatonic at this point because I'd been asleep, not asleep, I'd been awake all night in a larvu in a field full of reindeer. I hadn't slept a wink and I'd been very cold. And, uh, and so when this great day came, and it was an amazing thing to watch, it was the most extraordinary thing. But they said, you know, go and do it as well, you know, join in <laughs> and wrestle reindeer. And I, you know, it seemed insanity to me. They said, don't worry, it's perfectly safe. I did a bit of flapping, you know, if you flap, they kind of go the other way. And I sort of flapped and then I just, I just <laughs> sat down by the fire and the smoke came straight at me, so I had tears pouring down my eyes, but I just refused to move away from the fire, and all the old women were laughing at me, and quite rightly, because I was so pathetic. Um, anyway, my little bit of flapping reminded me a bit of something that had happened um, decades ago. So shall I, I'll read it, this mm -hmm. bit. So as I say, it's nothing to do with anything, really. So, um, once, in the dying days of the 70s, I visited a friend who had rented a cottage in Wiltshire. We had supper and smoked a small joint. Then she suggested a walk across the adjacent large ploughed field, where at the other side, between two oak trees, there was a huge boulder, indented at the top as if some giant had pressed a fist into it when it was still half molten. This, my friend informed me, must have been some kind of Neolithic monument to female fertility, a vulvic altar. Being between the oaks and the boulder not being from thereabouts pretty much clinched it, apparently, and I didn't argue. It was the 70s. I was stoned. And what did I know about large rocks between oak trees? We climbed up and stood on top of it to feel the vibes of ancient power, I dare say. Dusk had fallen as we walked across the field, and the light was failing fast. It isn't likely that we lowered our voices as we discussed where the rock might have been brought from. Slow shapes appeared out of nowhere, looming and then lowing. Cows, bullocks, geldings, I don't know, bovines anyway. They got closer and then formed a crowd, pressing tightly up against the rock, their rock, as they might think of it, in their field. Several of them pushed their noses against our legs. I felt the dampness of their breath. I am a city-bred person. This was too close. No, said my friend, country-wise, who earlier that day had said things like, ah, the smell of fox. Don't worry, they won't hurt you. We're the masters here. <laughs> Likely, this was the dope talking. She wasn't usually given to such extremes of hubris. Look, she continued, all I have to do is raise my voice and they'll scatter. I don't think... She gave a series of loud whoops that gave me quite a turn, but had much more of an effect on the herd of cows or whatever they were. As a single unit, they wheeled around and began to stampede. They thundered off into the darkness up to the other, end of the other invisible end of the field. The ground actually shook and I could feel it high up on the vulvic rock. 
It was a sight and sound I knew only from cowboy movies and watching Rawhide on TV, starring the boyish Rowdy Yates, played by Clint Eastwood before he became the man with no name. <laughs> the thunder of their hooves died away. Jesus, what have you done? My friend looked a little surprised herself. We decided to go back home before the farmer had us arrested for ruin ruining his animal's milk or meat or whatever it was we exploited them for. But just as we'd stepped down from the woman worship rock and were walking back to the gate, the ground began to tremble again <laughs> with an ominous, truly terrifying low roar, and it began to increase in volume. The cows reaching the end of the field had wheeled around and were coming back. <laughs> Not one bit slowed down or over their fright. The earth was dry and corrugated, difficult to walk on, let alone run away from a herd of cows. The shadows broke through the dark and came hurtling our way, a fast-moving convoy of 20 or 30 juggernauts of deadly hoof and muscle. Um, we are going to die. I meant this completely sincerely. It was clear that I had come to the end of my life, and I felt idiotic that I was going to die run down by a herd of cows because I'd thought I was master of the universe. <laughs> I pictured myself face down in the dry earth, my spine shattered into splinters and felt curiously embarrassed. I'd always hoped for something lingering and calm, certainly not so silly a finale. She was run over by a cow, you know. Don't worry, my friend said, keep still, they won't touch you. They'll come towards you, and then they swerve away. I wasn't impressed by my friend's certainty about the natural world anymore. Just don't move. It wasn't difficult. I was paralysed with fear. I stood very still and dug my fingers into my friend's arm. I felt it was the least she deserved. I recalled that she dug her fingers deep into mine also, but later, after the event, she said she'd remained calm and serene and most certainly did not clutch me in terror. And it was as she predicted. This bloody great mass of flesh came maddened with fright, rushing uncontrollably towards us two young women, standing in the middle of the field, and one by one, as they got to within a foot of us, they peeled away to the right or left of our bodies in their path, like air in a wind tunnel or water streaming round a rock. At the bottom of the field, they came together, turned, and proceeded not to trample us to death again as they raced up to the other end once more. It can't have been good for them. Surely their milk was sour and their meat tough. <laughs> we walked slowly, very slowly, to the edge of the field, my friend advised me not to run. What worked when we were standing up probably wouldn't if we were lying on the ground having tripped. And after another joint and a good deal of recrimination on my part, we went to our beds to sleep the sleep of the reprieved and never spoke of the incident again. <laughs> Ja, ni vill ha mer, eller? Men eh, jag visste inte... Eh, You're speaking Swedish. Oh, sorry. Wrong language. Sorry, sorry. I don't get it. I thought we were done. Uh, um, mm. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Questions, of course. Sorry. I was caught up in your You dropped off, tale. didn't you? you no, I did not nod off. I had just a nap while I was reading. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible. There's so much noise in here. 
Qu questions, yes, of course. Anyone who has any question at to, all for Thomas, can you take up the light so that Jenny sees the public? So that you don't have so hard to see his face. And a little milder. So you just give me a little tecken, so I'm going to go crazy. And I throw the mic i er fan. Everybody is completely stunned. I'm so yes. sorry. There you are, you see. Oblivion. What? Nothingness, yeah. Um, I just have a question. Have you felt like this all your life, or has it come with age? Have I? Sorry. I, have, have, I, you, have you felt like this, like, that you like emptiness? Oh. And is that something that, no, that no, has come no. with age? No, no, no. I think I've always felt like that. Um, when I was um, at school, I was expelled from, from a school I, I was sent to, because I used to steal ether from the chemistry lab. And... Um, and I used to just, you know, make myself unconscious with it. I just thought being unconscious was the greatest thing ever. Um, it's, no, you know, I mean, you know, I, did, I probably, was, you know, as a three-year-old, I was probably quite lively and, you know, went to dance classes and that, you know. Probably had more energy than I do now. But I, no, I, I think it's low blood pressure. I really do. <laughs> Metabolic. You met this uh, alcoholic on the train in the oh, United yeah. States. And um, in your book, you, you even, even figured to uh, search him up, to look for him, or to meet him at his uh, place where he lived on, uh, I think, California. Yeah, he lived in, in, on one of those yeah. places called something or other beach in California. So my question is, uh, is there a destructive, a self-destructive, Genodisky. What what is this? It is true. I've spent. I've had a lifetime of, of. I've got a very soft spot for alcoholics. Yeah, really seriously. Yes, I have had a series of alcoholic. My present, the poet, hardly drinks at all. That's all right. Um, oh well, I was very. Of course, I'm very. I was very self-destructive. Um, the most self-destructive thing was that I'd never got round to writing until I was 35 or 36. I sort of refused to write and made me very unhappy and very miserable. Um, yeah, of course I'm self-destructive, but I'm not sure really why, you know, why being nice to that bloke was self-destructive. Um, he was a nice bloke. It's just that I didn't want to marry him. <laughs> um, he did phone me in the end. He checked me out and, and phoned me and, and um, said he hadn't given up drinking, so I didn't have to marry him, so that was all right. That's okay. Um, are, you are you familiar with Swedenborg? Yes. The philosopher? Well, not deeply, not profoundly familiar with Swedenborg. <laughs> Um, um, actually, mostly through Blake, because uh, 
Blake was a great loather of Sweden, Swedenborg, so you know it, it comes kind of that way around. Yeah. Yes, um, he was a miserable I, I, sod, wasn't he? When you said that you were put off, uh, I can't see where you are. Wave ah. or something. Oh hi, yes, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> you said you were put off um, by the idea of um, the hereafter. Yeah. Because uh, it might be yeah. the singing of angels and things like that, but. Um, his concept of heaven was that heaven is everything you like in this life and hell is everything you dislike in this life, so maybe that... Yeah, well, be. he was obviously talking rubbish, wasn't he, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, quite honestly, if heaven really is everything you like in this life, then it's but, just But then heaven terrible. would be serenity for you and, and uh, hell constant interruption. Yeah, I suppose hell is sort of interruption, I suppose. But, you know, actually an eternity of serenity would be dreadful, wouldn't it? You'd be secretly wanting for in the interruption. I've never really liked goodness, you know. I've never been... I've always sort of thought being bad was much more interesting than being good. So when I talk about serenity, I'm really not talking about, you know, being nice in any way. Um, I would not be suitable for any kind of heaven that, that anyone that I've ever come across talking about it has... Posited. Um, heaven, I suppose, would be oblivion, wouldn't it? Heaven would be no afterlife. You know? I've, I've invented my own. Are your parents like you? <laughs> well, they're dead. <laughs> <So> <laughs> In some sense, they've kind of achieved what I've been trying to for some time. Um, no, my parents were rather difficult. They were, my mother was, was, was not the sanest of women, and my father was a con man. He was a, um, you know, he, for a living, he was a confidence trickster, um, mostly of, of wealthy women, or he hoped, you know. But he wasn't very good at it. Um, and he did go to prison for a couple of years, but I don't quite remember, I don't know when or how. I, it's all a bit mysterious. Um, they were quite complicated people. I think certainly my father was probably a depressive. I think you probably would have to be a depressive to be a con man, wouldn't you? Yeah. The book that I have never been able to read is Melville. I love Melville, but The Confidence Man is very weird because I know that it's a book that I really need to read and it's a really important book for me. But there's something about it. I cannot get beyond like the first 30 pages. Um, but I keep trying. I'll keep trying. Um, yeah, I think probably no, no. Neither of my parents were really sort of bright, happy people. They were pretty desperate on the whole. It's not an accident that I'm like I am. Obviously, I'm not suggesting, you know, that um, you know that 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 history has nothing to do with um, the way I am. But the way I am is the way I am, you know. Um, and there it is. I, I was wondering, um, it's interesting that people seem a bit um, provoked or, I don't know, by this idea of liking nothing. And um, I was wondering if you have been interested in Buddhism. And I mean, this is what I believe is 
a little bit Buddhist view mm. of, of things. But you see, yes, I really like the idea of Buddhism, and I have kind of sort of looked into it and done, you know, it's Buddhist meditation. There is a big drawback in, you know, the, the breathing stuff and all that, the mindfulness of breathing, I'm really happy with, you know, the sitting, breathing, concentrating, emptying your mind. What then comes along is thinking nice thoughts. There's another, there's that... <laughs> There's that bit about, you know, you meditate by thinking good thoughts about people you don't like. You know, I really can't sit there and think, for example, about Tony Blair in a, you know, in a, in a humane and decent way. Um, there's a kind of hippie edge to Buddhism, you know, beyond which I can't, I can't go. So I'm fine with the blankness stuff. But actually, Buddhism is much more about um, you know, love, loving things, people and everything. Um, and I don't, you know, and I did, I have done, I mean, I did actually do a course, a, a, you know, a sort of three-month thing, and I never really managed the, the, the loving-kindness thing. It's called loving-kindness, and even just the name of it just makes me sort of... I don't wish ill on people, you know, except, you know, Tony Blair and a few people like that. But um, it just makes my toes curl, really, just the idea of trying really hard to love people I don't know. It's quite hard loving people you do know, isn't it? One last question. You said that um, doing nothing meant you could look out the window or write or read for hours. And for many people, reading and writing are very stimulating activities. Mm. So it seemed a little contradictory. Of course, and that's the problem I had with writing this book about doing nothing, because there never is doing nothing. You know, there's, there's no such thing as doing nothing. Um, and reading is certainly not doing nothing. It's one of those awful things that people say to children, isn't it? Sort of get out your head out of a book and do something. <laughs> I am doing something. I'm reading a book. Um, no, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, contradictory is not a really, really a word that bothers me, to tell you the truth. I, I can't think of anything about the human race that isn't inherently contradictory. And if I'm not contradictory, then I'm not a human being, as far as I can see. So I, can, I live with my contradictions, and my, you know, people who read my books can either take them or leave them. <laughs> well, I don't love you at all. <laughs> <laughs>